Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, where this week Claire Armistead will be our guide through the Hay Archive. Hello, I'm Claire Armistead, Associate Editor for Culture at The Guardian and a long-term fan of the Hay Festival, both in Wales and in its various international incarnations. I've chosen three sessions which I was lucky enough to chair myself and which I think reflect the extraordinary range of the festival and its capacity to set thoughts spinning along very different but interrelated lines. First up is the rapper and activist Akala talking about his inspirational book Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire, which I've been giving out to young people in my life ever since I met him. One of the things I love about this book is its intellectual and imaginative generosity towards those of us who don't share either his street cred or his outsized brain. To give you a taste of what I mean by that, here he explains how his own background as the child of a white mother and a black father growing up in North London informed his politics. When I was five, I, um, one of the opening chapters in the book is called The Day I Realised My Mum Was White. And I think this is what we're talking about, about racial identities. We talk about these things as if they're out there and they have no impact on actual human beings. So one of the tra- things I try to demonstrate in the book is the way these structures impact actual individual lives. And so I take things from my life and then expand them out. So I was, I was five years old, I was, in, I was in primary school, and I went to school, and, and a boy called me a Chinese black nigger bastard. And come on, you can laugh. Stop it. You know, you, as far as racial insults go, that's pretty original, right? Now, for those of you who don't know, in, in Jamaica, we actually have quite a lot of Chinese people. And my great-grandmother, even though my grandmother looks like she never left West Africa. She looks, you know, Yoruba or, or Fanti. My great-grandmother looks Chinese, right? Or Chinese-ish. So when I was really young, I actually did kind of look like I was part black and part Chinese. Um, and so to be fair to the kid's parents, because obviously he didn't make that up, you know, he, he was kind of being anatomically accurate. But um, <laughs> what, what happened was I went home and, and I said, Mum, the white boy, and then I went, and it's like accusation, you know. And I was like, but mum, you're white, aren't you? And, um, and she said, no, I'm German. Be- <laughs> no, which, which, even though she's not, she was born in Germany, brought up in Hong Kong, her dad was in the army. And so my mum was able to set up other identities against white English identity. She was also Scottish. And so in a way, I could come and say to her, this happened at school, that happened. But that was the first day I realised, oh, shit, me and my mum are not the same. And, and you, did, you do talk about uh, then when you become adolescent and you're, you're becoming sort of more wayward and that the, the fact that she is white and you're, you're becoming black identified, you call it. Yeah, I, f- I think what happens when you're a teenager, so, you know, the first time I was searched by the police, I was 12. It was completely illegal. There was no adults present. I wasn't read my rights. I had a little leaflet, right? Because, you know, one of the black teachers in the school knew this was inevitable. So he gave us a leaflet. These are your rights. When the police stop you, this is what you're supposed to say. I tried all of that. They were having not a bar of it, right? And so you start to go through these experiences. And weirdly enough, if I lived in Tottenham, that would have just been the normal experience for everyone because almost everyone on my council estate would have, been, would have been black and everyone's working class anyway. So even the white kids who live in Tottenham kind of take on a black Caribbean-led social identity. Whereas living somewhere like Camden and going to school with lots of kids from all racial backgrounds, lots of middle-class kids. You know, my school, it wasn't the poor kids bringing cocaine into school but it was the poor black kids getting searched. And so in a way, living somewhere like Camden made it more obvious that we're not treated the same. I lived two streets away from, you know, Tessa Jow's kids. You know, they were in my class, you know. And so, and so seeing, the, seeing the, those differences early 
made me angry at my mum also. It wasn't her fault, obviously, but it was like, you know, it's you lot, it's your people. Um, and so I think partly that, but partly her discomfort. Uh, imagine you've got, you got a son who's going out in the world and having experiences. And also she hears how people talk about people like me when they don't know she's got a black son. And so all of this becomes a tension on top of the fact that, you know, we, we were very, not very, very well off. You know, my mom got cancer when I was nine or 10. So for two years, me and my big sister nursed her through cancer. And unfortunately, this is sort of the period where all of the apparatus that was protecting us, my mom and stepdad had split up. My godfather had his own family by now. It's like everything retreated at the wrong time. And then when my mom recovered and tried to tell us what to do, it was almost like, we've just looked after you for two years. We're adults now. Like I've been traveling to football training in Romford from North London. I was playing for West Ham three times a week on my own. I'm 12. So you can't really tell me I've got to be in at 6 p.m. anymore. Mm. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of tensions came out. My sister moved out and lived in a hostel. You know, things were just really, really difficult for a while. But we worked it all out in the end almost. But, but race was at the center of that because I was having these experiences out in the street, not just with the police, but with my peers. You know, the first time I saw someone get stabbed, I was 12. It was the same year, same as, year. The same year as the like, stop and search. And you, but it was with a meat cleaver it was with in a, a barbershop. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. And several times. And the guy survived. And he survived. He didn't even fall over. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. He, he was what we call one of my olders, right? So he was like one of my good friends, older brothers. But unlike a lot of the... See, what's happening now is and I'm going to sound like a real old-timer, right? But back in my day, it, it felt like if you got stabbed or shot, you were probably involved in bad stuff on some level. Not always, because there were innocent people that did get killed. Whereas it feels like now, it's a bit more random, but that's probably just me being an old-timer, right? It feels like now there's like no code or no hierarchy, but that's just me being old school. But yeah, my, my, my friend's older brother got, got, got stabbed up, but he was not an innocent bystander, I will say that. He was involved in that lifestyle. He'd made decisions for a whole host of reasons, got expelled from school at 12, was on that, was on that path. Um, but what fascinated me was my own reaction. Even though I'd never seen anything like that yet, I almost expected it. So, you know, it happened. I went to the phone box. I phoned my friend. I said, fam, your, your brother's in hospital. Go and see him. I went back to the barbershop and carried on cutting my hair. There was no counselling. It's only now when I look back as an as a old, old man, I think... You know, kids are having post-traumatic stress disorder and no one's talking to them. I don't even think I told my mom about it. So I'm having these experiences out where some of my peers are becoming killers. And then I've got this relationship with the police and then I've got, you know, tension with teachers, none of which my mom can really relate to. And, um, and so there was this real kind of head button for a, for a good few years from like 14 to like 20. Mm. And then once I turned 20, I kind of, I fixed up and, and you know, my mum did okay really yeah yeah one way or another. I mean, the thing is I was <laughs> the weird thing about my life is that it's really contradictory because I was always doing okay in school because of my uncles I never grew up thinking it was cool to not do well in school that's one problem I didn't have so my my the philosophy of kind of Caribbean gangsters back then was don't be dumb though like, if you're going to be a gangster like be really bad in fact it was sort of like I, I'm sort of the last age group where where drug dealers were looked down on if you were want to be a gangster, be a bank robber. That was sort of the hierarchy, right? If you, if you sell drugs, it was almost like you were a bit of a scummy criminal, right? Um, I'm telling you. And so in a way, even the bad people around me had a positive influence because they're like, you've got to be smart. Though. Don't be dumb. Don't drop out of school. So what would happen is boys would want to fight me in school and I'd be like, all right, but let's wait till after school. You know, let's do it outside of school. Let's walk away from the school 200 yards or something. Um, and so all of that was really a blessing. So I got really, really good GCSEs. I didn't really do college because I was playing football full time and the football clubs don't um, encourage that at all, really. 
Then I opened a restaurant in Cyprus. So you know, I was... I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I opened a restaurant <laughs> when I was 18. I got my, my aunties and my, and my nans to manage it. So I always had a kind of entrepreneurial... So you're an entrepreneur as well as an artist. But then I was around people who were also entrepreneurs, but in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> and very nearly got killed many, many times. And so I had, in a weird way, I feel like now that I've survived it, it's become a bonus because the young street boys can relate to me, but yet I have the academic success that I have. And there's not many... What usually happens is that even the black intelligentsia, if you want to call it that, are usually middle class. And, and so the kids in Tottenham are not really going to listen to them because they don't talk like them, they don't dress like them, they're, they're not really from their world. They just happen to be black, and we homogenise all black people as if they're from the same social class, but they're not. So I had enough... And, and, this, and this goes even for the kids who live in East Glasgow. I've done loads of work in East Glasgow or Crocksteff in Liverpool or poor white neighbourhoods where, ironically, they probably relate to me more than a lot of the people who write for The Times, even though they're both supposed to be white. Because the experience of a kid living in Easter House in Glasgow has more in common with a poor Londoner you know, on a council estate than it does with someone living in, I don't know, Richmond. Mm. And, and, and so all of those different dynamics have, have played into the analysis of the way I see the world. It's not that I think anyone sees the world differently to me is wrong, but if you've never been searched by the police in your entire life, and I got searched by the police for the first time when I was 12, at which point I was still a very good boy. I didn't become bad till two years later. You know, that process was very, very difficult. Part of that was the absurdity of it. You know, once I got searched on my way to the Royal Institution Mathematics Masterclasses. So, <laughs> no, and I was late for class that day, right? And so imagine I'm there thinking, and, and, and it's only years later, dawned on me, I was like, oh, it doesn't actually matter how good I am. You know, I was in the bottom 1% or 2% economically. I was in the top 1% academically. But for some people, they could see he was a criminal. And so that is an, ex an excuse for the decisions I later made. But it does help to explain part of them. When I was 11, I wanted to be Max Planck. I wanted to be Albert Einstein. I was into quantum physics. Why did I then become bad by 16? It's too simple to say, oh, just bad decisions. You talk to someone like Stormzy, for example, who's a pop star now. He got six A stars at GCSE. How did he fall in that, in that road? So it's, it's too simplistic to not analyse some of the... People don't exist in a vacuum. So part of your analysis, and what is so clever about this book is you always, your, your anecdotes always relate to some sort of political point. Yeah. And you're talk, you talk about schools, and you're not very positive about schools, and particularly about the transition from primary to secondary yeah, yeah. when things start to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who looks at... No offence, but if we look at state schools in, in London today in particular, there, there's lots of reasons to, to be pessimistic. Um, and a lot of this is grounded in, in, in the state's own studies. It's not, it's not me making up the studies that I reference in there. So, for example, um, Bristol and Warwick University did a couple of studies a few years ago where they looked at data from every secondary school in the country. And they looked at how race and class affect teachers' assessment of their students' intelligence versus their actual test scores. There were quite large disparities. They looked at how it affects the likelihood of being entered for higher tier GCSE. Massive, massive So this is... What I'm saying is, you may even want to think about why we have standardised testing but no standardised criteria for entry. Why would the state enforce standardised testing and have no standardised criteria for entry? And what we know is, you know, black students who have the same grades as everyone else are 30% less likely to get entered for higher tier GCSE. Even working class white kids, you know. Think about how our society is. If you don't talk posh, if your skin's a bit rough because you haven't been eating well as a kid, people just assume you're dumb. If you're a scouser, let's be real. People hear a Liverpudian accent, they assume you're probably not as bright. Now, that doesn't mean your teachers are bad people. It's not their fault. They, these perceptions exist. But why are massive decisions like higher and lower tier GCSEs entrance being left to whims when they're going to affect the entire rest of your life? 
And, and these are the state's own reports. The Department for Education did a report about eight or nine years ago where they looked at school expulsions. This is what they found. You can read their reports. It's not me telling people to be a victim or any of the lovely buzz phrases that exist now. They found when they looked at the data, black kids were 2.6 times more likely to be expelled when all control factors were inserted, whether they grew up on free school meals or not, whether they're in single parent families or not, whether they had good grades or not, whether they had previous suspensions or not, whether they had criminal records or not. Why would I want to not tell black parents to be vigilant of that? That's not me saying, encourage your kids to fail at school, give them an excuse to cop out. I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying actually be vigilant of the fact that there's a lot of propaganda. Black kids commit violence, it's black on black crime. My white cousins in Glasgow have been stabbing and shooting each other for 200 years, it's just crime. <laughs> the whole white race doesn't get blamed. Um, and, and, and so it's understanding, even for black people, like I talk to black Londoners, I'll just touch on this point for a minute, and even they believe it now, and I say to them, okay, if blackness is the common denominator for gang crime in London, we can test this hypothesis. There are two things we would expect to find if, that, if that's the common denominator. One, violence would be prevalent among a significant number of black people in London. Two, it would be prevalent regardless of class, age, gender, uh, education, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We find neither of those things. One, there may be 50 murders in London this year among black people, which includes those of us who are half white, which is in and of itself revealing that we're included in the black on black violence statistics. There are over a million black people in London. That's five per 100,000, or 0.005%. If you argued that was statistically representative in your GCSE, you'd fail, you'd get a U. <laughs> um, secondly, what we find is the, the extreme violence among, young, among black people is concentrated in the exact same demographic as is concentrated in among other populations. Boys between age of 15 and 25, usually from very poor homes, perhaps with a history of abuse in the home and almost always with expulsion from school. 47% of all the people in Britain's prisons were expelled from school as children, 24% were in care homes. And so for black Londoners, in a weird way, well, and no, to put it another way, if I was a white kid living in Croxteth, I would think a lot of the hype about black London was also a way of ignoring poor white kids. The one and only Akala. I would add that Native seems, if anything, more urgent and pertinent today in the era of Black Lives Matter than it did when it was published back in 2018. I don't suppose Akala has ever met my next choice, Sarah Jane Blakemore, but I imagine it would be quite a jam session if he did. She's a professor of psychology at Cambridge University and she came to Hay to talk about her book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. It's a groundbreaking work of popular science writing which combines all the latest research into the neurology of teenagers with anecdotes through the ages, bad-mouthing and age group which, she argues, has for centuries been quite wrongly vilified. So here's a really beautiful illustration of typical adolescent behaviour. This is from a reader who wrote to the Guardian newspaper a few years ago. So this is a reader called Dina Hall and she says... There's nothing like teenage diaries for putting momentous historical events in perspective. This is my entry for the 20th of July, 1969. I went to Art Centre by myself in yellow cords and blouse. Ian was there, but he didn't speak to me. Got a poem put in my handbag from someone who's apparently got a crush on me. It's Nicholas, I think. Ugh. Man landed on moon. <laughs> so what's nice about that illustration, that diary extract, is 
Less important is the fact that man happened to land on the moon for the very first time that day. More important are things like what Dina is wearing, who she likes, who she doesn't like. This is the period of life in which we develop our sense of self, in which our sense of self-identity undergoes really profound transformation. And in particular our sense of social self, that is how other people see us. If you think back to your own teenage years, if you're no longer a teenager, think about that transition around the uh, age of puberty, where suddenly things like your fashion sense become particularly important, what you wear, what music taste, what music you're into, um, what peer group you hang out with, who you like, who you don't like, even things like your moral beliefs and your political beliefs take on a step change in importance during the teenage years. That's not to say they can't change. They can and often do change. Not, most of us don't wear the same clothes that we did when we were 13. But um, it, it is the period of life where we're trying to establish ourselves and construct who we are, and in particular, how we're seen by other people, and especially our peer group. So... What's interesting about teenagers is, that, is how demonized this age group is. Whenever I uh, tweet about the teenage brain, which I do frequently because that's what I work on, I will inevitably get a reply in my Twitter feed saying something like, what, teenagers actually have brains? It seems to be really socially acceptable to mock and demonize this age group, which is odd in a way, because it's not really acceptable to mock any other sector of society in the same way. We don't go around publicly mocking and demonizing, I don't know, people according to their race or their gender or all elderly people. But we do mock teenagers for their, for their sort of stereotypical behavior like risk-taking and impulsivity and being moody and self-conscious and, and breaking the rules and making bad decisions. There is so much negativity associated with adolescence, and yet it's this crucial stage of development in which we are gradually becoming an independent adult. Adolescence is really fundamental to who we are and to who, be, who we become. So what is adolescence? Claire mentioned that her child, still 24, might be considered an adolescent. So it's really not a straightforward question to answer. Some people think of adolescence as teenagers, so 13 to 19, the teenage years. According to the World Health Organization, adolescence is defined as the second decade of life. Um, Stanley Hall, who was the first person to coin the word adolescence to describe this age group about 100 years ago in the USA, defined it as the period of life that starts at puberty, so around 12 or 13 back then, and ending between uh, 22 and 25 years. But most researchers, including me today, define it as follows. We define it as beginning at puberty, so the beginning of adolescence is defined biologically with the hormonal and physical changes at puberty. The end of adolescence has a much more vague and fuzzy definition, which is the age at which you attain a stable, independent role in society. <laughs> so this can go on a long time. And there may be quite a few of you here, by the sounds of it, who wonder whether they might still fit that definition. What you can see by this definition is the huge cultural differences associated with this, the way we conceptualize this age group. In our culture here in the West, it's completely socially acceptable to be in full-time education, to be living at home with your parents, 
throughout the teens, of course, but even into the 20s or 30s, whereas that's not the case for other cultures. In some other cultures around the world, uh, young people are expected to become independent, so they're expected to go out and earn their own money as soon as they can as children, and they're expected to have babies as soon as they reach sexual maturity. Some people have argued, because of these really big cultural differences, that adolescence is a an invented phenomenon coined, as I mentioned, by Stanley Hall about 100 years ago in the US and doesn't really exist as a biological period of development. But I would argue that actually that's not the case. And there are three really good reasons why we should think of adolescence as a unique period of biological, psychological, and social development. And that is because we see these um, these adolescent typical behaviours like risk-taking and uh, uh, exploration of the environment and impulsivity and even peer influence across species, not just limited to humans, across culture and across history. So let me just give you a few examples. So across culture, even where cultures differ dramatically in their social expectations of this age group, you nevertheless see similarities in adolescent typical behaviours. So one study led by Larry Steinberg from uh, the USA uh, last year um, looked at different behaviours across 11 different cultures. And these 11 different cultures were all around the world and differed very much in terms of how they uh, treat their young people. Nevertheless, the behaviours were strikingly similar across cultures. So the first behavior he looked at was sensation-seeking. That is the desire to experience novelty, to take risks. And that behavior across all 11 cultures increases during the teenage years. It's highest in the late teens, and then it decreases again in the 20s. In contrast, self-regulation, which is the ability to regulate behavior, to stop yourself taking risks, across those 11 cultures, improves gradually before stabilizing in the 20s. So across cultures, adolescent typical behaviors are similar. Across species, they are too. So we are not the only species to undergo this period of adolescence. In fact, all species have a period of their life between going through puberty and becoming fully sexually mature adults. And you can measure behavior during that period of time, which you might want to call adolescence. So lots of people, lots of scientists around the world study adolescent mice and rats. Both of those rodents go through adolescence for about 30 days. And in those 30 days, you can record their behavior, and you can see things like increases in risk-taking. They explore their environment more than they did when they were younger and than they do when they're older. Uh, they even show changes in socialization. There was one study published a few years ago showing that adolescent mice drink more alcohol when they're with other mice. <laughs> and that's not the case for adult mice. Adult mice drink the same amount of alcohol whether they're on their own or with their cage mates, whereas put cage mates in the, in the cage with adolescent mice and that makes them drink more alcohol. We come across adolescent behavior uh, in animals in all sorts of settings. This, I, I like to pick up uh, little clips from newspaper articles, and particularly The Guardian. This is another one uh, uh, a few years ago. So I don't know if any of you remember, probably not, but a woman in Australia was attacked by an adolescent wombat in 2016. 
And this is Martin Lynn from the Australian Wildlife Service. I was going to try an Australian accent, but I'm worried it's going to go back Welsh in the middle, so I'm not going to do that. So this is not an Australian accent, but this is an Australian Wildlife Service man called Martin Lynn. This is what he says about adolescent wombats. As babies, they're clingy, they're adorable, they're with mum 24 hours a day, they're in a soft, snuggly sleeping bag all the time, listening to a heartbeat. When they start to mature and hit puberty, they just hate everybody and everything. <laughs> they go from running between your legs and cute as a button to being absolute little, can I swear, little shits. <laughs> they nip you, they wreck, they bite. I won't look after adolescent wombats because you kiss goodbye to your flooring and everything. They just destroy everything. He could be talking about adolescent humans. But what this shows is that adolescent typical behavior is, across, is, is present across uh, human cultures and also across species and also across history. There are so many amazing descriptions of this age group in humans uh, across history. And I'm going to read out a few, because, a few that I've picked out because they are so remarkably similar to the way we think about this age group today. So this is a quote from Socrates almost 2,500 years ago. The children now love luxury. They're all really, really grumpy about this age group, by the way, all these, in all these quotes. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. <laughs> Aristotle as well. This is a, a slightly longer passage by Aristotle. The young are in character prone to desire and ready to carry any meaningful desire they may have formed into action. They are changeful too and fickle in their desires, which are transitory as they are, which are as transitory as they are vehement. For their wishes are keen without being permanent. They are passionate, irascible, and apt to be carried away by their impulses. Youth is the age when people are most devoted to their friends or companions, as they are then extremely fond of social intercourse and have not yet learned to judge their friends or indeed anything else by the rule of expediency. If the young commit a fault, it is always on the side of excess and exaggeration, for they carry everything too far, whether it be their love or hatred or anything else. They're very negative. The whole Greek poet thing is very negative about adolescence. Moving on, Shakespeare. This is a quote from uh, The Winter's Tale. So almost 400 years ago, Shakespeare says, I would there were no age between 10 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest, for there is nothing in the between but getting wenches with child, wronging the ancient tree, stealing, fighting. Sarah Jane Blakemore there talking about inventing ourselves, the secret life of the teenage brain. It's not a coincidence that she ended that segment by quoting from Shakespeare, because hay is a literary festival and revelatory thinking is by no means the exclusive preserve of scientists and political theorists. In 2019, I chaired a series of sessions on novels that dealt more or less obliquely with the subject of climate crisis. One of them was Gun Island by the great Indian novelist Amitabh Ghosh. It takes him back to the Shundabuns, the swampy labyrinth of tiny islands off the coast of Bengal, which also featured in his much earlier novel, The Hungry Tide. Ghosh is also a polemicist, who in 2016 published a short non-fiction provocation, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable. It asked why novelists, himself included, had been so slow to tackle the biggest and most pressing issue of our time. Here is what he said. 
Well, uh, you know, uh, it's certainly, for, uh, you know, because of uh, writing uh, books like The Hungry Tide and so on, uh, I became sort of very interested in what's happening in the, you know, in the world around us. In the so I followed it more and more closely, you know, these developments. And in 2016, or, you know, 2014, 2015, it became kind of an obsession with me, and I began to wonder, you know, uh, these terrible things are happening in the world, and anyone who's following it knows that it's only going to get worse. So why is literature not dealing with the subject head-on? And here I must say that, you know, uh, my argument in the book is that it's not just that uh, writers who need to deal with this, and in fact, it's the case that many writers have tried to confront uh, these issues in very inventive ways. It's the broader ecosystem of, uh, of the literary world that has marginalized this kind of writing, you know? Because even, even when very well-known writers like, say, Barbara Kingsolver or someone writes a book uh, about these uh, issues, uh, like she did uh, in Flight Behavior, the most important literary journals don't take those books seriously. They treat, them as, uh, they treat them as genre fiction, fantasy, whatever. Or, um, you know, they, do, they, they don't review them. Uh, the big uh, literary journals review many nonfiction books about these issues, but very rarely fiction. So I started asking myself the question, I mean, wh what is it about climate change that confounds the techniques of uh, the uh, modern novel, if you like? And, you know, that led me back to this very odd experience I had uh, as a student uh, when I was um, 21 in Delhi University. Uh, uh, one day I was uh, sitting in the library. In, it, it, was a, it was in March, I think. I was sitting in uh, April, yes. I was sitting in a, in a library in uh, Delhi University, you know, working away, and the weather became very odd. Uh, there were, you know, huge, strange uh, clouds in the sky, hail, etc. So I decided uh, to stop working, and I went outside, and I decided to go and visit a friend. So this took me on a road uh, which I never went onto as a rule. It was completely out of my way. So I went onto this road, and I was walking down this road. I saw my friend, and then I was walking back, and the weather turned odder and odder. So I decided to go back to my room. I came out, and when I was walking down this road, I heard a sound, and I saw people looking up. So I looked over my shoulder, and I saw this immense gray cloud, you know, in the sky. And as I was looking at it, a sort of strange spinning thing came out of it, you know, like a spinning finger, and it was coming directly down towards where I was standing. So I had the presence of mind. I mean, now I, I suppose I would have stopped to take a selfie, but <laughs> <laughs> and would not now be here to tell the tale. <laughs> but, you know, the highest number of people who uh, suffer from death by selfie is in India. <laughs> so, because of extreme weather events. <laughs> no, most often it's like in the Grand Canyon or so. <laughs> I mean, they go there as tourists and <laughs> topple over the edge, taking the selfie. <laughs> but I had, I had the common sense, uh, you know, to, uh, to uh, take shelter, so I ran to a door. There was this huge glass door, but it, there were many people there, so I ran around, and then I threw myself into a small balcony, and then I looked up, and there was this sort of, this completely surreal thing of uh, seeing uh, 
uh, you know, like scooters and bicycles and lampposts and entire stalls just hurtling through the sky in front of my eyes. Uh, and, uh, you know, it lasted for about 15 seconds and then it was gone. And then it, uh, you know, it, it stopped. And I went back to the place where I first thought of taking shelter and I looked. And all those people were dreadfully injured because the glass doors had broken. You know, I can't even explain to you this utter devastation all around. I mean, entire walls had been taken out of buildings. You know, in India, we have fans on top. The fans had been twisted into these tulip shapes. Buses had been carried over walls. Something like 30 or 40 people died. You know, and th so there I was, completely randomly, walking down a road that I never take for exactly the five seconds that the only known tornado in the history of this area uh, struck down you know, in this place. So it was a complete black swan event, utterly improbable, you know. But, you know, as a writer, we all uh, mine our own experiences. And for me, this was an incredibly powerful experience. And in book after book, every time I tried to write about this, you know, I tried to introduce a scene where, you know, some characters walking down a road and suddenly a tornado comes down and strikes the character. And I could never do it. Why? Because it just seemed so improbable. Uh, you know, the reader won't believe it. So, you know, what happens in real life is actually much more improbable than what is allowed to happen in a book. You know, uh, that's the strange sort of, uh, that's the strange sort of uh, paradox of the modern novel, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, Franco Moretti, he's a, he's a critic, and he writes about this. Uh, the ways in which from the late 19th century, uh, from the late 18th century onwards, uh, when you have a sort of form like the realist novel arising, is that you try to suppress all these uh, unreal aspects of life, except that they're not unreal. They are real. You know, all of our lives are essentially formed by two or three improbable events, you know who you meet, uh, you, meet your, uh, you meet your partner uh, accidentally, you know, you have a terrible accident or, or something like that. You know, they're all improbable events. So, uh, you know, that made me start thinking about probability in the novel and the ways in which, you know, often critics will say, oh, that, that book is just based on coincidences, as if life isn't all a series of coincidences. You know, what else is it? You know, and that makes you realize the degree to which we've excluded, as it were, the uncanny, you know, uh, from uh, what is narratable. But now we are at a moment when everything is uncanny. You know, election results are unpredictable, improbable, uncanny. Uh, the weather is <laughs> improbable, uncanny. So we just have to find a new... Uh, a new fictional language, if you ask me. You, you, in the very opening, it's a very, very striking opening to the book, you, you cite The Empire Strikes Back, a particular moment. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it cites this, uh, many of you will remember this, uh, this moment uh, in, the, in Empire Strikes Back, the film, when Han Solo lands his, uh, uh, lands, uh, his spaceship on what seems to be an asteroid. And he takes it for granted, and he goes into deep into the asteroid and settles down. And, uh, you know, like all humans, at least humans until the making of this film, uh, used to assume that planets are inert, that they're dead. 
And then suddenly, the asteroid begins to shake, and he realizes he's actually inside a giant earthworm. <laughs> so, uh, do you remember that scene? And then he sort of has to shoot out, and the thing is sort of trying to snap at him. So, in a way, that's the world we live in now. We've suddenly realized that this Earth, which Western thinkers told us was inert, dead, uh, you know, was not a living, breathing thing, now we realize that it is. It's living, it's breathing. And the only word that uh, uh, James Lovelock could find uh, to describe this Earth, he had to go back to Greek mythology and find the figure of Gaia, uh, you know, so, you know, in the pre-modern world, we all knew that this was what the Earth was. The Earth is a living ent entity. It's a living, breathing entity. Everywhere in the world, people have al always known that. So, it makes you wonder about the paradox of a kind of en what's called, what we call the Enlightenment, that it made us forget this most essential truth, you know? And you, you, you the end of this, that particular thought bubble about Empire Strikes Back is that... Um, that there is a gap between what, what Hollywood, how Hollywood looked on this event when it, at the time that it was made and what it means to us now and what it will mean to people centuries in the future who think it is completely ridiculous that for a very brief period exactly. people didn't realise that the Earth was an animate thing, that an asteroid was a living thing. It wasn't that people didn't realise this. Uh, you, you know, you're absolutely right in what you're saying, but I will put it like this, that a very small group of people who actually became completely dominant uh, across the earth, that is basically Westerners, uh, Westerners schooled in a certain kind of science and education, but they became the completely hegemonic uh, sort of uh, force upon this earth. But apart from them, uh, you know, across the earth, people never stopped believing that, you know? I mean, uh, they clung to their beliefs no matter what. I mean, even in say, a place like um, Italy, which, which is, uh, in many ways, the home of the Enlightenment, you know. Uh, you know, the Enlightenment Italy is the Italy of the coasts, but uh, the Italy that resists that Enlightenment is the Italy of the mountains along the center and the south, where uh, really, even, even today, there are these extraordinary rituals with uh, uh, tarantismo, uh, you know, uh, uh, where people have these uh, very strange sort of engagements with uh, spiders, with tar tarantulas, you know. Thanks for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers, and you can find over 8,000 more recordings on the Hay Player on our website. Join us next time for another trip through the Hay archives. <laughs>